Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined by Dr. For Jennifer Shuba. She's the author of 8 Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death, and Migration Shape Our World. The book is out today, and it's the perfect fit for our daily Realignment Ukraine series because it's focused on the role that population trends, so that's either population growth, population decline, increasing mortality, birth rates, etc. It's really focused on how all these topics fit into national security. So we're going to start with this idea that the national security is long-term and focused on, which is what role does an aging population or a even dying country from a certain perspective, how does that play into those countries' ambitions? How does it play into the foreign policy decisions they make? So we're going to start there focusing on the Russia aspect there, but we're also going to zoom out and focus on how these debates around populations, birth, death, sex, all these things fit into even our lives back home. So this is the perfect example of what I'm trying to do with this series, which is looking at issues specifically the Russia-Ukraine lens, but also taking a step back. Lots of great stuff here. would love to know your thoughts on the show because we're getting a little off where we typically go. Quick note, Sagar is making his triumphant return for another discussion episode that we're going to record this Wednesday. So would appreciate if folks sent an email in to realignmentpod at gmo.com with your thoughts, with things we've missed, things we need to be covering more, arguments you've had, all those great things. We'll be sure to respond to all of those things there. So it'll be a great opportunity to get him back on the show and really start pivoting us out as we enter the final stretch of this Ukraine series. All that said, this has been so great, and I want to thank the Lincoln Wolf for supporting our work during this time. Let's get into the episode. Dr. Jennifer Shuba, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you, Marshall. I'm glad to be here. We're going to have a broad discussion of demographics, migration, sex, all the, you know, really topical things. But let's start with the most topical bit, which is just how demographics and these dynamics are defining Russia as relates to the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, fortuitous would be the right word because there's nothing lucky about what Russia has done. But the, the timing was interesting with the book coming out because one of the reasons that I wrote this book felt really passionate about putting it out there was that I wanted to correct one of the narratives about the relationship between Russia's population and their national security. So a lot of people um, in the policy circles that, that I'm in, and I heard this when I worked at the Department of Defense in the mid-2000s, looked at Russia's population decline as um, a constraint on their ability to project power outside their borders. And I was always really wary of that because I think that's a misreading of demographic trends. And so I want to teach people in this book how to read demographic trends in a much more accurate way. So as a lot of people know, Russia in the early 2000s was losing population, I mean, sometimes 600,000 people a year. I mean, it was the incredible shrinking country, I think was one of the headlines that I had seen back then. And while they experienced a modest population boost um, in fertility rates and, and, you know, with some steady migration in more recent years, um, you know, there's been two different narratives. One is Russia would not be able to project power outside its borders. That was kind of corrected by a lot of people will know power transition theory and the idea that Russia knows that it's headed for long-term population decline. So if they have a military goal outside their borders, they'll act on it now as this last gasp before they weaken further. So that was a theory that would have predicted Russia's behavior with Ukraine. And I think there's some validity to that. Of course, we can't necessarily know. And I had done some research on that. But, but that would certainly be in the column of don't count them out just because their population is aging and shrinking and they've had high mortality. And then in recent years, I noticed that the narrative kind of shifted to thinking about Russia wanting to amass more people in the country. And so I think they got a boost of about a million and a half. You might know the number of that when they annexed Crimea and the idea that maybe Ukraine or even some other states around there by bringing them into Russia, that would give Russia a population boost. So, but that also would be a counter narrative to counting Russia out. Um, so certainly I think population played a role in Russia's um, 
invasion of of Ukraine, but I, it's certainly not the only factor, not even close. And that's interesting because from this context, one could argue that population decline, increasing mortality rates, which I'd love you to actually get into what the specifics are, because when you say they lost 600,000 people, it would be great for you to put the specifics there. But I think the way that I would articulate this is that serves as the backdrop for Russia's assessment of its strategic position in the world. But it's not as if one is literally saying, we need to add 1.5 million people to the ledger. Our battalions are understaffed by X percentage, therefore this, this, or that. Rarely, I mean, other than the one child policy in China, I I think we're gonna struggle to find that level of exactitude in terms of shaping your policy. But is is that a correct, correct me, add anything you want? Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, it's going to be an oversimplification no matter what, if we try to say Russia's population is the story behind all of this. But we do know that Putin has been really aware of Russia's population issues. There was one State of the Union address where he said that's the number one problem facing Russia. So we also can't discount it as an important factor. And it actually could be the case that he's thinking in terms of adding those numbers. I mean, one like global trend that we're all facing that I'm not sure everybody has caught up to yet in terms of their thinking is we're all headed towards aging and shrinking populations. And I am really going to use the all here because there's only a handful of states in the world that still have really high fertility. So we don't know what politics looks like, what economics looks like, social relations in conditions of population aging. The problem then is that we get to run wild with speculation about what that might mean. So I keep pushing us to fall back on what we do know in political science about what motivates leaders to do any sort of military action and then include population as one of those factors. Yeah. So let's get into the Russia example a little more, then we'll keep zooming out. Help articulate for us what does depopulation look like in a, once again, Russia, I don't think it would be characterized as a wealthy, perfectly industrialized society. But once again, this is still a relatively first world country when it comes to like its GDP, those different levels. So what does this mean in this context operationally? Well, Russia is not the only country that has had uh, depopulation. Japan is also a shrinking country. Germany at times has already been shrinking And uh, without migration, basically all the rich countries are headed this way. So population change has three ingredients only. Simple to understand. You've got birth, death, and migration. So there was actually a a report that came out uh, yesterday from the U.S. Census Bureau that deaths exceeded births in half of U.S. states between 2020 and 2021. So Russia is not alone in terms of deaths outpacing births. But Russia's issue was particularly intense in the um, early 2000s because they had very high mortality for men. So life expectancy at birth for a Russian male was somewhere around 58 years, which is well below what we would think of as retirement age. And what I like to think of as still being in the prime of life. And so um, that certainly contributed to population um, decline. And then at the same time, fertility rates were low. And there is no hope that Russia will increase fertility above replacement level. I shouldn't even use the word hope because that puts a value judgment on it. There's no chance because there's no chance that really any of us will. Once a country falls below replacement, which is two, one for mommy, one for daddy, it doesn't tend to go above that again. So the questions we really need to be asking are, can a country still have a healthy economy in a condition where the labor force is shrinking? And I do think that that's possible. We just haven't been very creative about it. We've had this really simplistic view that, well, fewer workers, more retirees, obviously a state will go broke. So what's different potentially about Russia's depopulation, and we could apply this to China as well, is what is the degree to which the administration is responsive to the people? So just to put it simply, if you have really generous entitlement promises to elderly people in a country, like um, let's think about Greece, for example, and the population is aging, there's a significant worry that the economy will really suffer under that imbalance. But what about if you don't have those promises? And what about if the administration isn't expected to be responsive to what the people want? So that's another reason why I've been trying to correct this narrative that 
population aging and depopulation very clearly and simply means that there can be no economic growth because there's different regime types in aging countries around the world. And something that I'd like to get into, um, I'm remembering just learning about this stuff like in high school amorphously, but the general broadly applicable idea here is that as societies like industrialize, as they get wealthier, wealthier, as childhood mortality rates go down, the the actual number of children um, born just goes down. Like this is a universal um, rule across, once again, styles of economies, regime types, all those, all those different bits. What I think folks aren't going to understand is why does that number especially in many industrialized countries, especially, frankly, in Asia, East Asia specifically, South Korea, Japan specifically, why does that number collapse even below 1.5, even below one? Replacement rate, once again, like two to 2.1, that makes sense. But why would it fall below that? Yeah, I think what gets difficult to understand is that we're we're jumping around levels of analysis here. So what we see with these numbers that, you know, South Korea and Taiwan have hit, I think South Korea hit 0.9, as you said, it's, that's a really low fertility rate. One that we would not have expected, even in Can a place you explain like, what 0.9, what, because once again, we're doing, yeah, crazy, sure. so it's, what so it's does just 0.9 mean? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, wow, how can you have 0.9 of a child? Yeah. So a total fertility rate is a great indicator. It's really useful. And what it means is the average number of children born to a woman in her lifetime. So just an estimate of the average And that's actually different from a birth rate. So they're not used interchangeably because your birth rate is looking at births per thousand and it can go up or down depending on how many women there are of childbearing ages in your society. So it's interesting in the short term, but I like total fertility rate because it gives you a a long-term perspective that's really comparable across societies. And so the wealthy countries of the world are below replacement level. And when you have a fertility rate of around one, that actually means each generation is half the size of the preceding one. I mean, you know, take a second to think about that. That's how we get these depopulation numbers. And I think that's also where you can see the importance of immigration if you desire for your population to grow, even when you have low total fertility. That's policy decisions some states make. So um, total fertility rate is... Uh, great for us to compare across across countries. And the reason that we end up with very low total fertility rates is you have to think about the individual decisions. So, you know, think about me or you or how many children do you want? And in a lot of cases, I think a feminist lens on this is really useful because there are a lot of women in industrialized countries who do not want to have large families because it is still so hard to combine work and family life. I think the pandemic really brought that to light for a lot of people who weren't aware of that. I mean, the number of Zoom meetings that I have had where my kids are running in the background, waving around, um, you know, it was really stressful and really hard. And I have two children. Um, So I think until we really work on making women's lives much more um, feasible to have work outside the home and a family life, you're going to keep seeing these low fertility rates. People are getting married later. People are having their first child later in life. And in some countries, marriage itself is just seems very unattractive. I mean, that's been part of what's driven Japan's very low fertility rate is a lot of women just don't want to get married. They're opting out of it altogether. I think what's a little hard to understand here on my part is I completely understand and can agree with the feminist perspective in the American context specifically, A, just living here, but B, like I entirely understand the framework and paradigm here. But what's so interesting is this is happening across societies where they have different levels of, let's say, familial support, different paid leave policies, different cultural norms around whether women work outside of the home or like our stay-at-home moms. This is happening across that. So I'm just thinking, I'm trying to think of like what, what so I guess the structural, and, and you kind of got at this, but I'm just like really interested in what is the unifying story beyond just the feminist lens, beyond just the, even the work norms lens that's driving societies as different from China to Taiwan, to the US, to Russia, to Italy, to have these really similar trending aspects. I don't think we have to let go of the feminist lens with this. I mean, let's think about a lot of Asian societies where structurally it is different. So 
many times the state is not the, you know, the last resort there to take care of people. It's the family. Well, a lot of people may have heard of this four to one problem, you know, that uh, there's women who are expected to be the caretakers for both their children and also their parents and maybe even their husband's parents may get sandwiched in there. That is really difficult. Um, in a lot of Asian countries with high urbanization rates, the cost of living is very high. Um, the educational system puts a lot of pressure on women to make sure that their children are tip top. I mean, this, this runs throughout Singapore, China, South Korea, Japan. So, you know, it might be different types of pressures. Maybe we would just say like a different flavor of pressures than you would have in the United States. But I think it boils down to still a tremendous pressure on women to have this, what seems like unattainable family life. I think the question then becomes, because this is the reason why this issue resonates with folks is just this idea. It, it falls into this like civilizational decline bit, um, especially if you're looking at a country or a place like Japan, where the, the issue isn't just births. It's it's like literally like a lack of. And once again, under I under I'm, I'm not married myself, so I understand I'm not getting married. But when you describe the Japanese issue, it's not purely just about childbearing. It's about whether you want to get married. It's about whether you even want to like have sex, like it's in the book title. So what, what, what's that part of the story? Well, you know, so marriage rates going up around the world are not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there's no demographic trend that's inherently good or bad. I, that's a very strong theme in my book. And that's why I try to add a lot of nuances to it. Marriage rates going up often, you know, is driven by people staying in school longer. So if you are out to get a college degree and then maybe keep going in your profession and go to medical school, that's going to bump up your average age at first marriage. So some of these statistics, when you start to peel back, you just see that, well, people are staying in school a bit longer. Um, Then people just might decide not to get married altogether because they have the ability not to. I mean, this week we could go way down a rabbit hole, but you know, there have been lots of times in in history for most of history when women needed a man to even buy a house, like you could not get the loan from the bank or you could not, you were legally not allowed to buy the house. That's not necessarily the case anymore. And, you know, I am happily married. So there's, there's nothing in here to try to say, uh, it's terrible to be married, but for some people, that's just not the choice that they want to make and they get to make that choice. So there's more of a choice there. You know, it's interesting. You're getting at the central tension here, which is there's the individual level and then there's the societal level. And so much of these debates across countries, across cultures come down to how does one balance that bit there? So for example, how does one, so once again, I obviously I'm not going to endorse the banking laws or those other aspects that limited, that limited women's ability to act independently, but the reason why those existed obviously was pushing towards a societal norm. That was a way of shifting norms. Now in the modern era, a lot of governments were, you know, whether you're doing a child tax credits, um, paternity, governments have tried to more like, let's say positively or affirmatively shape those decisions in a way that isn't once again, punitive in the way the previous was, but now they've tried to do it in a more positive sense. How do we assess whether or not those policies have been successful? Because as I understand it, they have not been particularly effective. Uh, That is great. And exactly right. Yes. There's no country in the world that hasn't tried to manipulate their population. Um, whether it's through a tax credit or other means, they're, they're not quite as insidious as Romania's Ceausescu that was, you know, mandated. Yeah, tell that, tell, tell that story, please. Most yeah. people don't know this. So I, mean, I think a lot of people, when they think about manipulating the population, um, go to one, China's one child policy. It's the most well-known. And that was China saying, we would like to limit our population growth. And so we are going to require that most people with some exceptions, you know, for rural um, communities, ethnic communities, get to only have one child. But we've seen the opposite of that as well. And Romania's Ceausescu is one example of that. So um, Ceausescu thought 
that he would like more ethnic Romanians and a women just were not having as many children as he wanted them to have. I mean, notice the little undertones here, of course, about attitudes towards women. And, um, a, and a quick, a quick, a quick, quick uh, frame setting question. So Ceausescu is a, you know, the communist dictator of Romania post um, dur- during the cold war. Did Romania have a population issue in the sense that countries today have a population issue? Like what, what was like the, what was like, what was Romanian society looking like before he pushed the policy? Fertility was down. Uh, it was low. You know, I don't know if it was below replacement level. And I might have written about that in the book and then just don't remember. Um, so there's a reason to go buy it because it's probably in there or it's footnoted very, very thoroughly. Um, but his pers- I mean, and here's the thing with population, too. Um, oftentimes it's actually not the actual numbers that matter. It's the perception of them that matters. And that's, that's a key theme in the book as well. His perception was there are not enough of us. I want there to be more. How do we make more? Well, we use women as breeders and we make them breed more. So he outlawed abortion completely. And much more than that, he would require women go get checked out at the doctor's office every single month to make sure that they were not actively trying to prevent pregnancy, um, whether, and, and this really like just put the pressure on women to say, you need to make sure that you are, um, producing for the state. And then I know that I'm older than you, but I remember growing up in the eighties with our nightly news, would just cover all these Romanian orphans and they, they were not, not in good health. Uh, and some of that is a result of those types of policies. So, um, it did work in the sense that the fertility rate went above three for a short while. If you point a a gun at someone's head, then they're expected to comply. But there were tremendous um, implications of that. And as soon as those policies were done and he was out of the picture, fertility fell because that's what the norm was. I mean, social norms are really important. So to get to an answer to your question about to what degree can the state actually force change? I think it's interesting to note that even with coercion, both with Ceausescu trying to pressure pro-natalism and China trying to pressure anti-natalism, once those policies are removed, the social norms are still in place. So once China removed its one-child policy, fertility didn't you know, miraculously go above replacement level. It stayed pretty much the same because that's what people wanted. They wanted fewer children. That's fascinating because the point to me would, and once again, like this isn't, I mean, we'll, we'll let's stipulate that we're going to argue against Ceausescu's policy and we're going to argue against the one child policy. But the key thing is no matter what direction you're coming from on this pronatalist, antinatalist, the real, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm a natalist, frankly, the real issue would seem to be that no, no one has figured out how to actually change the cultural aspect, even when you put your finger on the economic side of the thing. So let me ask this question directly then. What, especially let's focus on the United States where most of our listeners are. What is actually the number of children, quote unquote, that a woman in the US would 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 want I'm glad I'm asking this question to you and not to um, a male guest because you know yes, you gotta yeah, yeah. you because because the one Safe quick, space. the one quick uh yeah thank you for permission uh the one quick context I'll add though on this is the, the language here is so confusing and I say this as someone who has who's who podcasts so I spend most of my time just thinking about words in the discourse because people seem to try to have it both ways. So you'll see, let's say like in liberal circles, in liberal circles, someone will say, oh, women aren't having children, not only for the feminist reasons, but they have student debt and they can't buy homes and there aren't enough marriageable men. And like that problem, and not on the conservative side, they will talk about, oh, well, the reason why this isn't happening is hookup culture or like all these other, like there's, there's, there's both ends of it. So what is the actual number that isn't being met because both sides are basically alleging that the number is essentially low. No one wants to say people should have less. Well, there's the, we could get to the population growth thing, but at a core level, I do not see anyone arguing in favor of below replacement level um, population. They then allege based on their political perspective, that there's a causal reason for the number. So what, what is the number? Sorry for ranting, but I just, this has been a frustration. I I, I get so frustrated when I hear people kind of contradict when they talk about this. So just please, what's how, what's your, what's your response? 
Sure. And you know, here's the other thing about population. It always touches people's emotions. I mean, we haven't even gotten to migration yet, but talk about something emotional. I mean, that gets an emotional response from people tremendously. So women in the U.S. are having, on average, about 1.68 children in their lifetimes. Now, here's where it gets interesting. And I don't know these numbers for the United States. So this would be something to go look at or subscribe to my Substack, And I will make sure that I do a newsletter on this because I did it for Russia this week. So an average, as we know, totally um, doesn't include the range of choices. We, I mean, we don't know what the range of choices is just from an answer. In Russia, because that, this was the subject of my newsletter this week, 68% of families have just one child. But in Italy and uh, other countries, um, you know, you're, that people might be making the choice to have zero versus two. And so you can still end up with similar averages, but that's what you, so how do you tackle this question from, from my political demographic perspective? I would first want to know what are the choices that are being made behind the 1.68? What percentage of women remain childless? What percentage of women have two or higher order births? Childlessness is, is fairly common in Italy, for example, but is extremely uncommon in Russia. And yet you can end up with similar averages. So um, that's one of the questions that I would want to ask. And you kind of have to tackle that. And then you also have to look at what is the number that people say they prefer. So in many uh, low fertility countries, women often say that they prefer two, but then we know they have on average fewer than two. So what you know, what makes up that difference? We do the same thing, by the way, for high fertility countries. How many children do people say they want? How many do they actually have? And what explains the difference here? Or how do you get to narrow that gap? So the people in are a having high, children. In a high fertility country, is the desired number lower than the actual number? No, it's number? usually, um, yes, it's usually lower than what the actual fertility rate is. So the policies then become, how do we help people have the number of children they desire, which tends to be lower. And it's things like providing uh, outlawing child marriage. It's things like increasing secondary school education and family planning, reproductive health. Yeah. So in the United States, I would want to know also the numbers about preferences. And I, I can tell you, it's probably two. That's a societal norm. Look at TV. Look, I mean, we are just kind of grown up in this child family, mom, dad, picket fence, you know, we know this is the norm here. Um, and then look at these marriage rates. We know people are getting married less and less. I really think there is something to be said about this wealth accumulation though. I mean, I don't know what you've seen in your own friend group, but it's, it's expensive to try to, to buy a, a home. And I think a lot of people see that as a prerequisite to starting a family. Yeah. And that's an interesting area where the culture I, I just like, I like your, I, I like your point around, and I had never thought about it this way, but culture setting the foundation of whether or not those government policies are actually going to operate and too often from both directions, they're just not able to reckon with that fact. But America's in this weird culture shift where, and it's become a cliche, like the white picket fence thing now, by the way, is a cliche because 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 everyone I don't know how I don't know how you hear this, but I hear this once again to speak to the podcast, I guess, thing. I now hear every millennial podcaster, discourse haver, people with more than 10,000 Twitter followers saying everyone tells us that you're supposed to expect this white pick. No one actually expects that anymore. I, I'm actually, I, I, here's a question for listeners. I actually would want to know when was the last time you were told that you were going to get the white picket fence? That's, that's just a little side note here. But my basic point here is what, hmm, this is interesting then, what actually is the culture that people are operating under? Because they're not, it's changing. It's, it's actually not static. The white picket fence thing isn't real anymore. No one actually thinks it's real. So how would you just assess, A, a as a professional, but also frankly, just yeah. as a mother, how would you assess where the culture feels? Well, and I'm also a professor of undergrads and have been for the last, you know, almost about decade and a half. And so you see consistently pe people coming into your classroom between the ages of 18 and 22 and their expectations. And so it's actually two things I want to say. Um, one is we actually have some good news about these low fertility rates, by the way. Part of what is driving U.S. fertility to be lower is that teen and adolescent births are down and mm -hmm. abortions are down. So 
you know, you talked about the polarization and the rhetoric on both sides about fertility that is left out a lot of the time. I think if we went and if we ask your average listener, you know, how, uh, how bad is a uh, teen birth? Huh? What's a, uh, and how bad are teen abortions? They're like, it is terrible. It's out of control. It's worse than it's ever been. I just think, you know, those ideas are sticky because it was once high. They've fallen tremendously. And that is part of what has driven U.S. fertility lower. So I don't think anybody's from the left or the right would be sad that, you know, teen and adolescent births are down and abortions are down. This is a good thing. Um, so the second thing I want to say is, you know, you mentioned earlier that quick, quick thing. Could you, yeah. could you a quick pin? Cause I want to follow, follow up on this. Um, and by the way, um, this is a difficult subject, but I'm speaking um, as someone who was born to a teen mother. It's the yeah. whole adoption. That's why my last name is Kozlov and not something <laughs> a little more African-American sounding, but I've heard a large cause, though, of the decline of teen-like pregnancy and just abortion is because teens just aren't having sex. Um, And to tread very carefully, I'm not saying that teens (laughs) should be having sex, but there's a bad version of that that falls into the Japanese side of things, which is if people... Because because I think that's why the Japanese story is depressing for folks, which is, mm-hmm. oh, it's not it's not merely that young women and young men are saying, hey, like, I don't need to conform to traditional gendered marriage practices. Actually, just like, no, actually, I'm just fine being kind of socially atomized off from the world. So can you speak to the like, how much of this is culture improving? Not even culture. How much of this, how much. How much is this us solving the teen pregnancy crisis in the 80s and 90s? How much is it just like, no, like people are just not doing things in ways that will have negative implications in their 20s and 30s? Yes, I think that is fair. I mean, we I I think we can celebrate teen and adolescent pregnancy being down if it means that, you know, women can stay in school longer. They're they have more choices in their lives about what kind of work they go into, just all of those great things. Um, It does play a role. Uh, people not having sex. And, you know, I've seen, there are some papers out there. I would definitely um, send people out into the demography Twitter world um, because that, that exists out there some, Um, but so does uh, contraception. I mean, people are using contraception more. So there are, there are people who are still having sex when they're teens um, and they're just using contraception more. So there's less teen pregnancy. And then there are people who are abstaining And boy, this is where we get back to our problem of level of analysis. And if you're a parent of a teen, don't know how sad you are if they're deciding not to have sex. I don't know. We can ask the the parents who are of teens who are listening. Um, But if you're talking about some, you know, societally, you might be like, oh, that's too bad. They could be out there having fun. So (laughs) we have a level of analysis issue again. And what was the second thing you were getting to? So the second was... You mentioned, I don't think anybody's sad about um, fertility being below replacement. Ah, but they are. So I teach environmental politics and a couple of generations really stand out to me. Uh, One is our current generation of college students are very concerned about climate change and are very concerned about the role of consumption and population in climate change. And there've been a few articles out lately that portray this as a significant issue that may constrain people's childbearing choices when they get older. Now, the way I phrase that was deliberate because, you know, you can ask 18, 19, 20 year old how they feel about this issue. And it could seem the most important thing in the world. But as we know, when we get older and we get some distance from college, things that you thought were really important change for you. And so I would say we don't know how much those concerns will actually constrain their childbearing behavior. But we can flip back to thinking about the late 1960s, early 70s with the ZPG movement. You may have heard of that, the zero zero population growth movement. Yeah. And people really did make childbearing choices based on their fear of the environmental changes that were happening in the world. And so I just got back from a book festival in Tucson and spoke on two different panels or about a hundred people in the tent on both days. And as we know, Arizona is a you know great destination for retirees. The tent was filled with baby boomers whose perceptions of population were shaped 
in the late 1960s. So nearly every question I had was about overpopulation. Mm -hmm. So I think there are, those pressures do exist. Um, Those feelings that below replacement fertility, especially for rich countries where our consumption habits are driving climate change, um, that exists. Yeah. And I'm glad you actually took it there because I want I want to get to that before I get to the migration question. You know, the show is called The Realignment. So we're thinking about ways that we should realign our thinking on issues. And, you know, I, I was raised in an environmentalist household. So like I literally have an uh, old, dusty college era copy of like the population bomb um, from like the 70s. Right. So like I very much am aware of that discourse, but the discourse on population has shifted in a way that folks, even I was born in 1992. So I'm, I'm, I'm about as like old as you could be um, in terms of growing up in, sorry, I'm about as young as you could be in terms of growing up in that post zero population growth movement period where the perception really was if human population does not slow down, you're going to have mass starvation. Um, not, and it was like, this has nothing to do with climate change. This yeah. is just pure, oh, yeah, like there sure. is this for biological sure. limit on the number of humans the earth could support. Um, therefore, our number one worry is decreasing that number. We've completely shifted that discourse. Now, the climate change discourse is like a little different, but can you just speak to just like the realignment of just discourse around, especially just in mainstream spaces around population, because it's just really interesting to think about it at almost meta level there. Yes, I, and I will say this up front. I do my best to never say the world is overpopulated because I know that from that narrative, all kinds of bad policies can follow. So if we just give a really simple overpopulation narrative, like was present um, during the Cold War, I mean, you saw both Republican and Democratic presidents were unified in how they felt about Uh, population growth in poor countries around the world. And they saw that as connected to communism. They're like, well, if you're poor, communism looks like a really attractive um, option for you. So if we want to spread our influence around the world, we actually need to deal with what they would frame as overpopulation issues in less developed countries. So that was present then. And we saw it resurge right around the time you were born when there was an explosion of ethnic conflict after the Cold War. And, um, you know, you think about this Robert Kaplan article that had been in the Atlantic, and I think it was either 91 or 1992, the coming anarchy. And it was about look at the environmental pressures, as you said, not talking about climate change, just good old fashioned (laughs) scarcity and uh, the role of population in that. So that rhetoric popped up again, um, particularly in U.S. discourse. And then you saw a lot of um, policies about development, rights-based family planning. And there was some overpopulation undertones there. Kind of falls away in the 2000s, 9-11. And then I think with climate change, I find it resurrected. And in fact, we've seen, you know, there there are several articles by, you know, pretty prominent demographers that have gone back to overpopulation as a problem. It's really troubling to me because what overpopulation really means is there's too many of those people over there. Yeah, I was gonna. There's um, I, I yeah. think um, I think this is either Prince William or Prince Charles who've made some like very, let's just say like uncomfortable. Um, they are having too many oh. children. We need to solve that style. Right? And once again, it's, 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 this is the point you're making, which is that when you're overly simplistic, like once again, like let's get real for a second. Like if we're agreeing that wealthy industrialized com- countries are actually depopulating. If you say there's an overpopulation problem, you are speaking about very specific countries with very specific historical relationships to the West, especially. You got it. You got it. Exactly. I mean, and then we've even seen, you know, when overpopulation rhetoric was, you know, so uh, important in the 1960s and 70s, you saw some mass sterilization campaigns come out of that. I mean, that's where you get these coercive policies. People are like, well, we need to deal with this and here's how you do it. Uh, And that is not what we want to see happen. So, yeah, I think the overpopulation discourse is still sticky. And I wonder how much of it is um, that our oldest voters who are our most politically active ones were so shaped by that being the prominent discourse during their formative years. You know, there's a lot of interesting generational research like that 
discourse would have shaped their worldview and would continue to do that now. When, of course, we know the problem is consumption. Even if there are fewer of us eventually in the developed world, the amount that we consume is just astronomical. I mean, every light in my house is on right now and the heat and all <laughs> Me the too. Things. So you're not alone. In I'm, that. The, I'm the problem. <laughs> I am the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So then let's, let's get to the migration part here. Cause this is also, we're, we're, we're managing to hit um, indirectly a million different culture war issues at once. Yep. Here's the, here's the real difficult part here, which is the, the immediate response well, let me put it this way. Um, in countries, aside from the U.S., because in the U.S., the migration conversation is super, super complicated um, because of just the, the border issue. But like, largely speaking, obviously, this is a con- the U.S. is a country of immigrants. When we're talking kind of about country, if you want to see countries hostile to immigration, like look at Japan, like, liter- like literally like not feasible in the traditional sense. It seems like the difficulty is that oftentimes countries want to have it both ways, which is that they 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 want so let's let's say you're in Japan. You you want to have young people who can work and can do things and can support you in old age, like pay pay. And because once again, this is a reason why low yo, low numbers of young people are a huge problem. Who is paying into pension and entitlement systems? So there's like this very basic level of thing. So you want that, but you also don't want your society to change. So then this is, yep. and, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, spl- I'm not trying to explain for people who often can be racist, but I, I do think there is a fair discourse around. I, I'm curious to be your thoughts on this on the immigration question. I, my, my critique of migration policy in the West has been the conversation has not been clear or frank enough. So 1965, the U.S. passes the Migration Act, which fundamentally reshapes the nature of the country. So this changes us from a country where migration was, for racist reasons, let's be frank, um, directed towards like West Europeans, um, this um, limited like Eastern Europeans, this limited um, Asian folks, like people from the broader, you know, developing world. So that's a thing that shifts. But there wasn't a conversation. Actually, it's kind of funny. I've done a bit of reading on this. As I understand it, even the policymakers who passed that law did not even understand the implications yeah. of what was basically happening. So, so how, so, how, so it's, so yes, yeah, just the way to, and once again, if I'm ineloquent um, and rambly about this, because I'm trying to tread very delicately around this, I basically want a society that welcomes migrants, but I think what policymakers need to do a better job of is being honest and frank about the results of that. So how would, how would you, how would you basically sum up this space and how we should think about it? So my immigration is a choice. I think that's, that's my bottom line. I, I, there are a lot of, of, actually, there are a lot of books out there right now that, you know, painting that waves of immigrants are coming in the future. The future is immigration. That leaves out completely the politics of it. Politics is the gatekeeper and states have this choice. And so I think what you're pointing to is the range of choices that states make. So, um, on the one hand, you might have, I think we can put them in, let's put them in just three categories here. You've got a Japan that says, we are willing to take whatever economic hits there might be because we don't want to change our ethnic composition. That is a choice we're making. There may be penalties to that choice, but we'll take them. Um, there are countries like Singapore and in the Gulf, the Gulf states, that say we would like to have immigrants to fill um, lower skilled jobs in society, but we don't want them intermingling. So we are going to make as authoritarian governments, um, very clear distinctions that if you're in Singapore, you know, y'all are gonna live over there. You're gonna live in these high rise places. You're not gonna intermix with everybody else. Uh, You got your own set of rules. This was pretty rough during COVID when they were very sick, Um, but, we're keeping you kind of separate because our big goal is to preserve the ethnic balance that we have in the country. In the Gulf states, they say, men are welcome to come in. Don't think you're gonna intermingle with everybody else. You're coming here to work and you go home. But then you have the liberal democracies. And because they're liberal democracy, I mean, Japan is a liberal democracy as well, but they've, they've made that choice. They've, yeah, um, it's, it's Western it's, yeah. Yeah, there's, so I will there's, say there's, there's, there's a democratic consensus around yeah. the nature of Japan. Yes. And so actually, I think that gets to your, we need to have a frank conversation. Japan is actually having that frank conversation. They're saying, let's talk about this. And then we're going to make this choice. 
Whereas in a lot of um, Western European countries and North America, it just simmers under the surface. And, and it's not a frank conversation about, well, you know what? Our ethnic composition is going to change under these regulations, but I also think we haven't been very creative on it. So it's so polarized in the United States that you, neither side is, can do anything constructive. I mean, you're just stuck. We have not had comprehensive immigration reform in decades because it's just seen as too politically polarizing. Well, what are all the other ways that we could have, what are all the other migration policies that we could have that would allow people who want to come to the United States to work, to do so, and then go back home if they wanted to, and then come back again? I mean, we've just lost a lot of this flexibility that I think would keep our liberal democratic ideals in place, but also fulfill these, um, fill these jobs that we really need people for. Yeah. And I think I I really just want to double click on your point around these are political choices. And and I'm because, because once again, this is actually very good. If I were to sum up a broad theme of this episode is that one should avoid inevitableist language in any direction and just too often folks and no and this is actually good because and look this is this is also part of the globalization backlash discourse globalization is inevitable the world is flat therefore x number of factories are going to be lost therefore like let's be a little uncritical about the nature of letting china into the wto or the way that we construct nafta i mean those are both complicated issues but it just seems like a huge part of the hangover we're dealing with right now is just really inevitableist views in Posed, once again, democratically validated, we obviously Bill Clinton was democratically elected. The Congress that signed NAFTA was democratically elected. The Congresses that don't pass immigration reform are democratically elected. So I'm not alleging a conspiracy. No one's breaking any rules here. But there was just too much assumption that things were inevitable. So let's, let's speak to the inevitable part here. What, okay, so this is good then. What choices then do actually do all what's what's focused by regime type so what what choices do and there's categories but this is like where where your political science background is helpful so there's different categories here so there is ethnically homogenous but democratic so that's japan there's ethnically kind of diverse but still directionally homogenous at the leadership structural level. So that's China in the sense that like Han, like there's, there's Uyghurs and there's Tibetans and there's all sorts of complications there, but at the core level, the country is conceived of as a Han Chinese country, but it's authoritarian. What choices do those specific homogeneous types, the liberal version and the autocratic version, what what choices do they have on these three counts for the next decade or so? I think that is, this is a great point. And Really, that is the core theme of my book. Demography is not destiny. There's nothing inevitable about any of these things. So, you know, to your question about regime type, and we could just talk about demography in general. What choices do these countries have in terms of fertility, mortality, migration, and the impact of that? So I hit over and over in the book, um, you know, that demography is not destiny. And I try to show why, because if I had just tried to publish a book that would summarize global demographic trends, it'd be out of date before it even hit the shelves. And instead, I try to walk through what kind of questions do you need to be asking about this? And as a political scientist, really hitting on that regime type is, is really important. So it gets down to politics and about the allocation of resources. So you, as a leader of a country, are in charge of allocating resources in society. If you are beholden to voters, your choices are constrained by them. If you're beholden to three or four rich people in your country, your choices are constrained by those three or four rich people. Or if you're beholden to none of that, then you have the the ability to determine whatever kind of choice you want to make. What this looks like in practice, I've often thought about with population aging. So um, I've done lots of research on this and and talk about it a lot in one of the chapters in my book, but just because um, two countries in the world, let's say China and Japan, are both experiencing population aging doesn't mean that what spits out the other end in terms of the sausage is looking exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And I think the mistake that people have made 
when assessing what will happen with China is that they borrowed from Western Europe, which because we haven't had aging countries before. It's just, this is all new. So they've said, mm. well, what do we know about this? Let's look at Western Europe and look at how they cannot raise their retirement ages. You know, when France tries to do this, people take to the streets, like huge protest culture, of course. So they have been able to do only these incremental um, ways to raise retirement age there. That's just one example to say, well, look, China is going to, um, they're the first country in the world that will grow old before they grow rich because it's going to look the same. But as a political scientist, I say, why do you expect that to look the same? Because they don't have the same kind of pressures over there. We've seen some people take to the streets with pension protests, and we've seen tiny changes to the pensions. But it's not like this large scale overhaul by any stretch of the imagination. So I think we're better off looking at a country like Singapore, which has experienced population aging. And what have they done? So they basically push the line that the family is in charge of taking care of older people. And that is codified in their laws. Oh, it's a country of only 5 million people versus, you know, 1.4 billion people. But I think it points that these decisions will be made in a different way, depending on regime type. And the question, so two big last questions. So I, I'm, I'm a natalist. Um, I think we should be let's say 2.2, it's got a little tiny bit above placement rate. Um, what, if, if, if that's the policy procedure or that's the policy result that I am looking to have, what would your recommendations be? Or actually, no, let me take a, let me take a step back. I, broadly speaking, want, it's not that I'm trying to literally say like, we need 2.2 children. I want to have a, a stable, successful 21st century society. Yeah. I think that's a society where people can have the number of children they want to have. Um, that number's at two. Let's just take that. So that's when we should live in. And then it's also a country that can determine like the proper immigration policy that balances all these different factors. Like what, what would your recommendation set be? And I, I know it's hard to see. Yeah. I, I don't want to say your recommendations because I think you're, you're not quite writing that type of book. Yeah. What are What would be the optimum choices that one looking for that result could look at? look to. Yeah, because I think I would approach it in a different way. You know, I said before that there's no demographic trend that's inherently good or bad. And with population, we have this Goldilocks problem. It's too big. It's too little. It's never mm. just right. And so I think we like to go to this replacement level as it's a, it feels so comfortable. Oh, let's just settle in at replacement level because it's like so visually appealing. If you have these population pyramids, if anybody's ever seen those, right? It's like, looks like a little stovepipe. That looks like it makes a lot of sense. But that's pro there's nothing about that that's actually inherently perfect. It sounds like a great ideal, but what is it that we think we're getting if we have a 2.2 fertility rate? I think that's where, you know, there's so much discussion of this in the book that, you know, if some people in society want to have zero, one, or three children, you can have a great life at any one of those choices. And so if the ultimate goal is to have a really high standard of living and high satisfaction and peace for people in society, you can have that at any in, at, at many fertility rates. Um, I think it's probably a lot harder when you have six children on average per woman. Um, but at these lower levels, it can be great at any one of those. And so I would say I'm pushing back against the ideal of two, because I think it's made up. There's nothing about that that's inherently great. You know, there's lots of options people can make. Just to go back to Japan, for example, when um, Shinzo Abe realized that, um, you know, certainly Japan would not be accepting tons of immigrants every year. Fertility was not necessarily going to go any higher, though he did try to put in some policies around childcare, for example, that would, you know, in the effort to help raise that. Um, but that the labor, when he realized that the labor force would be shrinking, he worked harder to bring women who were out of the labor force into the labor force and to make it so that people, older workers who wanted to stay in the labor force could stay in the labor force. And guess what? Japan's labor force numbers, instead of shrinking by 8%, they actually went up by 1%. So even in a low fertility society, you should ask questions like, are there people who might um, be a resource as workers who are outside of the labor force for some reason 
And truly in, in every society, just about women's labor force participation is quite low. So, you know, why is that? And how can we make better use of this as a resource? What about older workers? Are we pushing people out of the workforce three decades before they're expected to, to pass away? Well, could they, could they be a greater resource for us? So I don't think there's anything magical about a fertility rate of two. Let's take what we have and try to make the most of what we have. Yeah. And this is just really, I, I really like enjoy an episode where I could kind of develop a new thought. And the thought I'm really just developing is the the core thing that basically every state regime type, whatever is struggling with is even in your most authoritarian country, there is just a level of individual autonomy yeah. at a deep level that basically the state just does not have the ability. No, to just set like it's a dial and a knob. Yeah. So the state could not take an influence, but we, it's just this, there's just no knob yep. once those economic and cultural factors fell away. And that's what everyone's really struggling with. So let's just finish with this question. We started with Russia. Let's end with Russia because this is technically a part of our, our broader Russia series. How should Russia think about this? Because what's so difficult on the Russian end is it's actually not just that the population, it's not just that the fertility rate's going down, it's that people are dying, right? Like the Russian male, um, if he's not being conscripted to go fight into the army, actually even in the army, there's a disastrous problem with alcohol. It seems like there's actually like not, like there's this, Japan does not feel like a dying society. Oftentimes, certain parts of Russia feel like it's a dying society when you literally have male mortality rate, like like increasing, I guess would be the the proper term. So how should Russia think about this? I think that's such an interesting way for you to frame it. Um, Yes. If if people in Japan are living, you know, into their nineties and, you know, active and that seems shoot, I'll take that. You know, that's another reason why I would say population aging isn't inherently bad please Lord, let me population age up in here. So um, when you think about Russia, I find um, the what is happening with Russia right now, it portends very poorly for Russia's future demographics. And so this does bring us back full circle. If population played a role in Putin's decision to go into Ukraine, he has made a fatal error because Russia's population is about to see tremendous decline and stress. Um, I wrote about this this past week in my newsletter going down through fertility, mortality, and migration. So we don't yet know the degree to which these economic sanctions will punish Russia, of course, um, but we would expect that they're going to have some real economic um, stresses coming up here. Well, economic stress falls in line with all three fertility, mortality, and migration. So we know that after the Iron Curtain fell and there was so much upheaval in Eastern Europe, people felt very unsure about the future. And that was one key driver of low fertility in Eastern Europe. They were unwilling to bring a child into that situation. So let's put that on Russia. Okay, well, they already had below replacement fertility, pretty much the exact same as the United States and China. I'll point that out. All three countries right aligned there. Um, If there is economic stress and social stress in Russia, fertility is likely to be pushed downward more. We also know that there are fewer Russian women of childbearing ages coming up on the horizon here. That's Mm -hmm. baked in because, you know, they're already they already exist. You can see that. That's what I love about demographics. So already you have fewer potential mothers and then the average number may go down. Secondly, with mortality. As you mentioned, alcohol had been a significant issue in Russia, and that was one of the reasons that mortality was higher. Um, Deaths from accident, suicide were were really hurting both Russian men and women. Well, researchers, excuse me, researchers had found that um, social stress played a huge role in Russia's alcohol issue. Guess what's happening now and in the next several years? Significant social stress. So I would expect that alcohol to become again a problem and Russian mortality to increase. And then finally with migration, you know, migration is, is actually in some ways pretty simple. It's pretty predictable. You want to go places where life's not so great to places where it's greater. Mm -hmm. That's just a really simple thing here. So if life in Russia becomes less great, and in fact, if it becomes comparatively less great than some of these sending states, 
the migration is going to fall. I mean, Ukraine had been one country that had sent a lot of people to Russia. I would expect that to go down in the future and perhaps in other countries as well. So Russia's population, I think, will have some significant stresses in the next several years and maybe even longer than that because um, what will happen in terms of fertility, mortality, and migration. Jennifer, this has been really great. I didn't know you had a Substack. Um, I'm sorry I didn't come across that before. Yeah, it's br- it's new, but yeah, because uh, yeah, there's just so much to say. Yes. Yeah. So just please shout the book out, shout the Substack out, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I really it was a really fun conversation, and uh, I appreciate the chance to talk about the book too. Um, sorry. And what, what's the like? It, sorry. It, yeah. Uh, yeah. What's the book? What's the Substack name? Um, Yours. Take out. Thanks so much, Marshall. The book is Eight Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death, and Migration Shape Our World, because we are almost at 8 billion people. And then the substack is just jennifershuba.substack.com. And my last name is S-C-I-U-B-B-A. So you can find me in both places. And I would love to connect to people on Twitter, LinkedIn, et cetera. Thanks. Good show. Thanks for coming coming on, Jennifer. Thank you. Reminder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases, and of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.